This episode is sponsored by Appian, a technology leader in driving digital-first insurance transformation. With Appian's low-code automation platform, you can build enterprise apps and workflows rapidly in an agile environment. I like to fly small planes. I actually also do aerobatics. So if you Google Daniel Dimitri airplanes or go on YouTube, you'll see me flying upside down. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you are the, <laughs> the second pilot that I'm, you know, that I'm hosting uh, on this show that I know of. Maybe there are others that are flying, but I'm not familiar. But in the past several weeks, so we had uh, Rochelle from uh, Honk. She's a helicopter pilot and she's been flying. Yeah. Very she's cool. been flying a helicopter since she was a teenager. So are you, are oh, you wow. only fixed wings or? What's the level of your license? I'm only fixed wing. Mm-hmm. I'm only fixed wing. Um, and I never believed that you could become a pilot outside of training to be a commercial pilot. In many countries, that's still the case. The United States is reasonably unique and special in that the public has the sort of the right of the skies. We have um, ownership of the skies as a public. Mm-hmm. And that's not uh, philosophically the same in every country. Uh, in many countries, um, you don't have essentially a right to go get a license. And, uh, and the, way, the only way you can become a pilot is to go the military route or go the airline commercial route. Uh, so our private general aviation um, yeah, community here and our privileges here in the, in the States are actually pretty sacred and special. Um, and so... Uh, when I learned that you could le- go just on your in your spare time, become a pilot, uh, I jumped at that opportunity, and I've it's been keeping me busy for over ten years wow. now. I you know have a very fast mm-hmm. mind. I uh, get bored quickly and like to move quickly. Um, flying is something that continues to challenge me, and that I still have never never ever f- felt was getting boring. So I assume that at this point you have hundreds of hours. Yes. Which license? Which level do, are you? Uh, commercially certified, so I have a commercial pilot license, uh, single engine aircraft, single engine land, and I also have an instrument rating. Yes. Cool. I started to take a few hours, a few lessons, spent a few hours uh, when I was living in New York. So there was in the airfield, a flight school on Long Island. Yeah. And then, of course, I lost the book and we moved to Los Angeles. And I told myself, you know, I'll pick it up. It's like... The, Once you drop it, it's harder. So yeah. I also got I got my license then, in the New York City area, but in New Jersey. Oh, I was cool. living in New York. And yeah. Every weekend, I would take a public transit from downtown Manhattan to uh, Port Authority. Then I would take a 40-minute bus. It would drop me off on the side of the highway... I had to run across the highway like Frogger style and, uh, you know, like avoiding the, the cars. I would wait at the Dunkin' Donuts for my instructor to pick me up. He would drive me a mile and a half to the airport and it took over an hour, hour and a half door to door. Um, and then I would wait for 40 minutes for the bus to, on the way back, standing at the side of the highway. It was a whole day activity for me. That kept me busy. That's so, uh, yeah, that's yeah. so much fun. Yeah. So, you know...
you know, let's talk a little bit about your background, introduce yourself in, you know, and not just um, the, the hobby that is, that I think that our hobbies really reflect and help us to shape who we are. Um, you know, we can throw in pedigree. Yeah, you went to Harvard, you're an ex-Googler. You know, who is Daniel? Uh, Daniel, I'm, I'm a fintech and insurtech geek and uh, lifelong uh, member of both the technology and finance communities. So as long as I can remember, I uh, have been interested in both of these fields of both finance and technology. I learned how to program uh, in C, self-taught when I was nine years old, uh, initially wanting to build computer games. Uh, and um, I also have always been interested in finance. I come up from a family of doctors. My parents are both doctors. My sister is a doctor. My wife is soon going to be a PhD in biology, uh, studying hmm. uh, human oncology. So uh, I have, I'm surrounded by uh, biologists and such. I found my comparative advantage in the family, in the finance side, looking at the back of the newspaper at the stock tickers and being fascinated by uh, those reams of information. Uh, started trading in the stock market with my bar mitzvah money and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just have had a passion for both things. What it was interesting is the difference between now and then, uh, even through college, uh, fintech and probably to an extent insurtech at the time, what meant being an IT at a bank. And IT at a bank is a very different experience as a technologist uh, and as a business leader than is being a fintech or being a disruptor or building really disruptive innovations. And so um, at that time, I thought if I can only do IT at a bank, then I'd rather just be in the business side of the bank. And uh, because the IT functions just weren't as empowered as they needed to be. And so I pursued finance. And then I, I really missed the technology side of my personality, of my interests, of my identity. And I got that opportunity to join something in the business side uh, or that varies the business side of technology at Google, where they was uh, brought into their associate product manager program. There's been books written about it. I was one of uh, oh, about- cool. One. Yeah, I was yeah. one of 40 uh, globally selected um, associate product managers in my year. And I got to marry both the business and the technology uh, sides together as the um, uh, product manager for part of the ad exchange. And that really opened up my eyes to how digital marketing works and, and has skills and, and deployments relevant to what I do today, marketing insurance uh, in real-time marketplaces. And so that was sort of how my career sort of switched back and forth between um, technology and, you know, even after college, the first job that I really had out of college was working at kayak.com and uh, then switching back into finance and then switching back into technology. And then finally leaving Google, I got to marry those interests together. And that was where I uh, became the first product manager at a company called Earnest, which is an online student loan company now owned by Navient. Uh, by the time I left it, we'd originated billions of dollars of student loans. And uh, that was finally where I got to marry my interest in finance and in technology together. And I plan to spend the rest of my career using those skills and those interests to democratize access to high quality and integrated financial services and insurance solutions for people. And that's basically fasting us forward to today. How, so Trellis, 
Trellis. What's the, what's, yep. What's Trellis all about? Trellis is really the embodiment of this opportunity to help people get better insurance that's meaningful to them and to simplify that. Ultimately, what we can do with Trellis is break down the silos that exist between insurance and the rest of people's financial lives. So at the core, Trellis Connect looks a lot like Plaid for, for car insurance and homeowners insurance. So uh, it's an analog that is very apt because you just look at it and it looks a lot like Plaid. Ultimately, we empower consumers to digitally share their insurance information. And that's the same thing they've been doing for hundreds of years. At the end of the day, insurance has always been very complicated. People have always brought their policies to agents' offices, and they've just done it in paper. And as things are digitally transforming, and especially the digital transformation being accelerated with COVID, people don't want to go in person anymore. And the call centers you know, aren't this experience that millennials want. And so people want mm -hmm. to digitally share their information with agents and advisors um, because that's the channel that they want to use. It's on their own time. It's self-service. It's more efficient. It's more accurate. It's less error prone. So how do we enable consumers to digitally share their information? The Plaid style approach of, well, you give me your login so that I can securely authenticate your identity. And then the carrier will provide that information about you that they have on file. Who, who are you? What cars do you have? What coverages do you have? Payment history and billing history, payment schedule going forward. All this information we can pull down to advise you and to give you value. And so uh, Trellis is about unlocking the value of that data, of your own data, and enabling carriers to more efficiently serve you and personalize their services for you. The second step of that, once we've said, okay, insurance is now accessible, it's easier, it's simpler, it's more efficient and effective for everybody, then what we wanna do is create new kinds of value that no one's even thinking about. And so one example, at Earnest, where we originated billions of dollars of student loans, the most common reasons that consumers were asking for forbearance on their loans were insurable issues, health issues, and car issues. And so in America, where people's personal cap tables look piled high with debt, where they have student loan debt and the mortgage and then credit card debt, and they have a very thin slice of equity, then it stands to benefit all these creditors if you put an umbrella of effective coverage over your personal situation. So what I mean by that is if you have good car insurance, then if your car goes into the shop because of an accident, the insurance company will re reimburse you for a rental so you can still get to work. And if you're injured, then they'll give you, um, you know, wages, so, uh, you know, wage replacement to cover that disability issues. And so that way your personal financial life is not disastrously affected by catastrophic events that are unfortunately not uncommon. And so if mm -hmm. a lender or a creditor could establish and know that you have this appropriate coverage, that they, you present lower risk to them. And so they could credit you a lower interest rate. Nobody is thinking about this. But it's no one's thinking about this because it's technologically challenging. We can build the plumbing and the pipes to combine this information that's existed, that has always existed in the insurance realm, combine it with the creditor, with the bank account, with all the investment accounts you have, and give you holistic advisory at that and effective products that are aware of each other. So that is possible with the efficiency of technologies like the ones that we're building.
tell you what, one of the things that I really enjoy having founders with a clear vision and understanding of the problem that their uh, product uh, uh, provides is that they already answer in the first question, like five follow-up questions that I plan for the underwriters, right? <laughs> you want to define what's broken in the industry and how the different uh, parties in the space are, you know, dealing with that and what does it mean? Now, the only thing from, you know, with this amazing answer that I manage is like, oh, maybe people are not familiar with Applied and what does it mean? Mm. But you already sort of answered what Applied is doing. But can you maybe a little bit elaborate about how Applied, how they started and how they actually impact f uh, fintech? And yeah. what does it, you know, because there was a pushback at the beginning, but later on, the, the banks lean into them. Yes, absolutely. So uh, Plaid's background is uh, actually, you know, the, the history of data aggregation starts well before Plaid uh, in the same mm -hmm. way that the history of online payments starts way before Stripe. And so uh, data aggregation started off with folks like Quicken saying, you have a complex financial life. It has a lot of elements to it. And unless you're super ultra high net worth, you know, where you have a whole office of people whose full-time jobs are to make sense of all these things that are separate, you need software and efficiency to pull together your bank account with your credit card account, with your loan and your mortgage, and it all needs to be in one place so that you can make sense of your life as a person. And so that was what, you know, companies like Intuit started doing, and they built technologies like uh, data aggregation technologies, like the Intuit data API that no longer exists. But uh, on the back of those data and experiences, you also had companies like Mint starting up saying, how can I uh, serve users in similar ways, but maybe even better? And they were trying to use products that weren't like Yodlis and, and, and Intuits that weren't perfectly fit for the developers at the time. And so Plaid said, you know what we're going to do is we're going to start from the developer experience and think about what are developers trying to do for consumers? How can I make a really easy data exchange protocol for developers? so that we can unlock all kinds of new experiences for consumers like Venmo and Robinhood. And the banks initially were skeptical, you know, I think unnecessarily worried, thinking at the time, well, if we enable Venmo and Robinhood, we could lose all of our customers. Fast forward, mm -hmm. like decades later, Robinhood and Venmo are extremely powerful, successful platforms, and the banks are still very successful and powerful platforms. And so I think the lesson there is that if you, as a data source, become source of truth, store of record, and the banks become that, then you become more powerful. There's more motivation to bank as opposed to be unbanked and to have a, a, more of your transactions running through the bank, more of your cash available in the bank because it becomes more useful to you. And so I think the same thing is true in insurance. So un unlike with Plaid, uh, which Plaid was really the response to hey, Yodli and Intuit, they have these solutions. They're not working for developers. Let's help developers make more applications. Trellis is starting in an environment where there is no existing data exchange protocols other than um, you know, loss reports that you can fax between agents or I suppose credit bureau style solutions that require different levels of um, like uh, engagement with the industry and, and expense and they're, and they're centralized and have data quality issues. So. Um, we don't have necessarily, we're not a challenger to an existing solution. We're opening up a new market of opportunity here. And what's exciting about that 
is that, yeah, on first glance, and I get this question all the time, Daniel, if people can link their insurance account information, what happens to the existing insurers? Do they become commoditized? And why would anyone keep using the top insurers of today if they, people can port their information out to someone smaller? And the answer is actually, number one, people don't want to switch to something smaller. We run every day into customers who value the brands that they are currently with. And number two is if you make the data useful to people, like if you could say, if you could lower the interest rate on your loans, or if you could more easily sign up for a ride sharing platform, or if you could get better financial and investment advice because of the coverages that you have, then that mm -hmm. insurance becomes more useful. And if you have an independent voice, maybe an app, a financial advisory app, that's an independent voice telling you, you don't have enough coverage, or like this coverage doesn't fit the fact that you have a home and you have your old 22-year-old self kind of coverage, then maybe people would listen and buy more coverage and we could solve some of the underconsumption of insurance that exists in the industry today. And so, right. yeah, mm -hmm. no, please. Yeah. No, I, I was about to say, you know, one of the analogies that I love to use is, well, we are just building a, or baking a bigger cake. You're not going to lose your slice. It's actually going, maybe you'll think it's smaller, but how the volume yeah. of it is going to be way bigger. Yes. And if you're using that analogy and we look at the layers of the cake, basically what we, and that, I, I used to love it because I was a big advocate of APIs. You are limited to your creativity and innovation. Once you open an API, you open innovation, you, you have those uh, developer first attitude that creativity that comes not on your money, not on your cash, on the developers, the entrepreneurs out there, they will build new things that basically will benefit you. Yes. By you, I'm talking about the incumbent. Yes. Right? Yes. And so yeah. that we can Fantastic. do things with this technology that aren't even competitive to insurers today. Uh, what about mm -hmm. a one-click auto loan refinance? Like, why can't you refinance the loan on your car if you already know name, address, date of birth, vehicle identification number, and all this yeah, information and port it into an auto loan refinance application, then that's exciting. Um, how can we get uh, insurers to capitalize on the value of the data they have to extend to adjacent markets? Like if, Ooh, right, so if I- That's very, 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 very sensitive for insurers because their data, even for just running any pilot with a car, it can take months just to get approvals. Yes, that's right. And But um, we already see that's happening. The uh, sort of what consumers, I think, at the end of the day want is best of breed products, and, and but singular points of relationship and content. Who are your customers? Uh, well, we're a marketplace, so we have a two-sided marketplace. So uh, Trellis mostly is licensing its technology to... Well, Trellis is, is licensing its technology to insurance distributors today, as well as mm -hmm. uh, working on extending into some of these new use cases and unlocking new kinds of value, rideshare, car dealerships, uh, like online car sales platforms, um, uh, you name it, sort of anywhere that uh, data is useful to consume, fintech apps. Um, so Trellis is licensing its technology to a number of different kinds of players in the same way that Plaid licenses uh, bank data aggregation data to uh, to multiple kinds of participants, including incumbent banks. And so uh, we're also licensing our technology to incumbent insurers. So it's a pretty diverse mm -hmm. community of users, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about 
funding. You are a startup after all. And the beginning of June, you announced that you finished the, what was it? Series A? Yes. 10 million? Yes. Yeah. You know, um, uh, the, it was a very exciting round for us. We're excited to be working with QED, uh, which is our lead investor in the Series A. Uh, they've been very supportive of us to date and um, you know, have a lot of experience in fintech and are going to help us penetrate the fintech market. Uh, in particular, with um, this ideology that insurance doesn't have to be separate. It can be sort of mm-hmm. combined and, and embedded into your overall financial life. Uh, yep. Now, it's interesting because when I started the company, this is a you know tip to founders. When I started the company, I was looking to raise $2 million. And I was told by investors at the seed stage, that's great. If you want to raise $2 million, I need a plan for how are you going to have $2 million of revenue by the time you run out of this money? That was the sort of the litmus test in the baseline at the time. Maybe in 2021, the litmus test is, do you have a pulse? Here's $2 million. But at the time I was raising, it was $2 million and they want to see $2 million of revenue. And I internally thought, geez, that's really hard. I've never built $2 million of revenue from scratch. Uh, and so that seems like a challenge, but I'm, I'll try it out. And we got to $2 million having burnt less than half the money that was invested into wow. us. We became profitable within a year. And are now at over a $20 million annualized revenue run rate. And at the time that we raised, we're profitable. We were profitable through last year on a net basis. So we had to pay Uncle Sam income taxes, <laughs> which is not something many startups wow. do in their second year. This, the investment no. that we raised was uh, entirely strategic. Well, if we, can, you know, if we look at Amazon, it took them like several good decades to, to reach that part, right? Yeah, well, I tell all of our investors it's a mistake for us to be profitable. Uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, the Zebra recently said that they've had certain months that were profitable, but they were an accident, by, you know, it was by accident. Um, it was some of the similar situation here. <laughs> the good news is that over the past few months, we've been able to grow hiring and, and therefore OPEX. And so uh, we're on track to finally be less profitable. <laughs> Uh, so that's the goal. Thank you. For... <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. My goal is not to be profitable. Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, it's. <laughs> I don't think that people truly, who are outside of business, especially or startups, and you know, making those calculations understand the leverage. We have a lot of you know, sort of criticism when we look at that, but that's how business operates, right? Yeah. And especially when you add the leverage and understand, you know, the debt versus equity. Yeah. No, that's that's very nice. Yeah. Um, In terms of the way that fundraising and you know business development progress, I get the question a lot. How? What's the exit plan? Or like, where are you going with this? And the answer is actually a very simple one. I think in the way that I would want to run a business, which is focus on what you're trying to change in the world, and where are you blocked, and where can you accelerate? You know, some people. I think to an extent, like Asaf, everyone knew that Asaf wanted to build Hippo into a large public company, and it mm-hmm. was almost like a publicly stated goal. And I think to an extent, maybe to IPO the way that they did, which is a phenomenal success. Maybe you have to embark on that journey knowing you want to do that. But what I really want to do is democratize access to high quality and integrated financial services. And so when I think about what do we do from a fundraising perspective, what do we do from an M&A perspective? Um, would I ever get bought? Would I sell pieces? Would I buy pieces? What I want to do is ask the question, does this help us realize that world we want to live in? where consumers financial services talk to each other and they serve our individual purpose and meaning. Uh, and so mm-hmm. that's how I think most businesses should be thinking about what do they do in terms of fundraising and whatnot. Now, in the case of our Series A, as an example, we knew that QED 
would bring us really best in class leadership in terms of how do we think about scaling this thing quickly and having the influence in banks and in fintech to help us network and build credibility to get the fintech and financial services community thinking about insurance enough. And so that was why we did that round. By the way, what was your first traction? So pre-seed, had an idea. What was the first one that said, you know, I believe in you? How did you build that traction? So later on in your seed and of course, your series A, you reached that point. You mean on the fundraising side or on the business development side? So I would say it's both because yeah. usually the problem with startups, you know, they will go, okay, um, I need people, mm-hmm, I need mm-hmm. the business, I need this, I need the money. Who came first? Was it yes. uh, the business partners, the customers, yes. the money? Yes. What came first? So I think that um, the, the advice that I give to founders is that you need to answer basically four questions, somewhat in sequence and somewhat in parallel. The first question is, can you build the idea? Like, is it even buildable? Some people, you know, some companies are worth a lot or are working on really hard, technically challenging problems like quantum computing. And there's these cool quantum computing stars where they don't really know if they can build the thing they want to build. The second thing that you want to de-risk is, will people use this idea? Is it a good idea in the sense that people even want to try it out and use it? Then the next question is, if they do use it, does it create value for them? And then the fourth is, if they cre- if we create value for people, can we claim that value? I was in line for at dinner uh, for uh, at, a, at a college reunion. One of my prior classmates, uh, who's now a professor of negotiation, told me there's really just growing the pie and carving the pie. And so you need to think in mm-hmm. negotiation about building value and claiming value. I would use online dating apps as an example of a business where you might be creating hundreds of thousands of dollars of value for your customers, where they've met their lifelong partner. I mean, what could be more valuable than that? But you'll never be able to claim the full extent of the value for it, because I don't think people want to believe that the app magically was responsible for finding their life partner. They want to believe that they're more, you know, that they are special and deserve this person. And so it'll be very hard to convince people to mortgage their homes to pay for their dating apps. Uh, and I think the same thing was, that was the approach we brought to building Trellis, which was, uh, how do we answer these questions? Can we even build this data exchange technology? And we started doing that before uh, we raised the seed. And we did that just with our own money and time. And it didn't take that much time or money. And because I have a technology background and, and I know some Google engineers and we were able to put this together and we were able to validate that this is possible to do. Then having proven that we can do this, and that it will get us the data that's valuable and necessary to serve audience of, of insurance shoppers, at least. Then uh, we were able to raid the seize money from led by General Catalyst. And uh, mm-hmm. that was a very pivotal moment in the transformation of the company where we now had the funding required to go build a full solution that we believed we could use to claim value, not just to create value. And that was where we had to go cut, get revenue. <laughs> and so... Uh, right. So then, so they, they, uh, led a $2 million seed round for us and, uh, and we got to work. We started building the company and, but we didn't exactly know the execution that would deliver value. How do you bring this a general idea of you log in and, and car insurance data supports your life? How do you execute that? And we had to go through a lot of iterations of the product. We tried licensing it to insure techs. And they were all too busy. And they was like, look, if I have something that's working, I'm going to go roll it out statewide, uh, nationally, and I'm not yet national. And so that's what I want to focus on. Or mm-hmm. I have this other idea. 
And and then the big insurance companies, they just don't want to work with early stage startups. And, you know, why should they? Uh, it's it's not necessarily, it's a bit of an impedance mismatch between the large corporate engine and a small company that needs to move nimbly and quickly. So, uh, so that didn't really quite work either. We started trying to license the technology to agents and individual independent producers. And that didn't really stick either because they didn't have enough volume or digital exposure that to bring users into a digital experience. And so that didn't work really very well either. The training of it was a big hurdle. Uh, so the, the execution that ended up working the best for us was uh, licensing the technology to fintech apps because they already had users who were logging into things. So this was just another thing to log into. And by helping connect these fintech apps into insurance companies, we were able to create value by taking this audience that wanted financial advice and by serving them additionally on top of that insurance advice or at least insurance recommendations. And so saying, hey, you as a, a partner or a customer of the Truebill app, as an example, you might save money or find a better policy or better coverage or might find benefit from switching to progressive insurance or all state insurance. And so by marrying or matchmaking fintech app users with insurance companies, we found we were creating a lot of value for users. Users were switching insurers or upgrading their policies or at least getting in touch with their agents and then getting retained, but maybe buying more coverage or better fitting coverage. And we were able to claim that value. So let's talk about the future of Trellis. You know, you extend, you're building the team, you know, recruiting more and more people, especially now I'm sure that you raised the 10 million for operational, as if we joke, um, to get into that instead of, or not to be profitable. Um, you hired uh, my dear friend, uh, Mario Ramos. What's the goal for 2021 or 2020? Yes. So 2022, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So Trellis is at a very exciting inflection point now. We have enough users now that the top insurers are taking interest in how they can use the technology to enhance mm -hmm. their core operations. And that's going to be a very pivotal moment because the moment you take this technology and, and start working with the top insurers, you start unlocking 10x, 100x, 1000x more value than when you're just with the nascent early adopters of fintech. So uh, what our plans are to do is to expand in three directions at once. Uh, one direction is uh, penetration of the market. How can we get what we know is this amazing technology into the hands of more people who want to use it? Now, I have to remind everybody that not everybody wants to log in online to manage their car insurance. In fact, less than half of users want to and are able to provide a login to access and use their insurance information. But for the millennials, the Gen X, the Gen Z, and the more digitally savvy among uh, older generations, it's a game-changing experience if they want to and choose to. And it's enough game-changing that it's worth their time, and it's worth the time of insurers and carriers and fintech apps and the rest to offer this as an option uh, because it can be so dramatically game-changing. One of the facts that you know isn't really talked about in insurance very much or that isn't talked about enough is that online quote to sale is typically like 5%. What does that mean? It means that a lot of people, 95% of people are spending their time getting insurance quotes online and then not buying them, which most people would call a waste of time. 
<laughs> and so, you know, yeah. And the conversion rate is horrible, right? Yeah. And this is the sort of the goal to, call to glory for many ad specialists and marketers, yes. salespeople that will try to sell you, oh, here are all these quotes and different legions. Yes. Yeah. And so um, that is a really big opportunity for the, ind the industry to solve. I mean, when the baseline conversion rate is 5%, if you can take a cohort and convert, you know, that's a third or a half of the users and then add 5% absolute conversion, you've just doubled or like you've increased 50%, the conversion rate, 50% is an enormous amount of efficiency for an insurer at scale. So you mm -hmm. don't really need to totally change the game for everybody. You actually need to totally change the game. You can totally change the game for a smaller a segment of people. And so penetrating the market means that for us, it means this online login technology is available through every user's insurance shopping experience. We want every user from the beginning of their shopping, which might be on Google, um, all the way to the end when they're at the quotes page and they're talking to an agent on the phone, to have this opportunity to digitally share their insurance information to get personalized service. So that's what I mean is from end to end, mm -hmm. you have this option, not a requirement. And here is a silly question. Have you been looking into integration to the AMSs of the world? To the what? To the agents. Oh, the AMSs? Management system. Um, yeah. No, uh, we, um, we have not been doing that yet. It, it's an interesting opportunity. Uh, there's powerful platforms that support independent agents today, like Ivan's, that allow mm -hmm. agents to keep tabs of their policyholders when they sell their policies. So it hasn't been a top priority to call Vertifor and, and, and talk about an integration. I think a more interesting yeah, integration. Sort of yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, a more interesting integration for us would be like with the guide wires and with the, the rating platforms. The systems. Yeah, mm -hmm. because they are the source of truth about what the products are. And what we can do is help build a distribution platform for those products. So, um, you know, they ultimately, if you talk about bind APIs, like these, these are the systems that ultimately, uh, you know, will power a bind API. Uh, any kind of bind API is on top of these platforms. Uh, another reason that these systems are very interesting is that they possess the policyholder data. So yeah. when we talk about authenticating into this data, it ultimately lives in these policy admin systems. So those are, mm -hmm. you know, pretty rich and interesting areas um, to be thinking about. Where does this go uh, from our perspective and working with them? Um, yes. Yeah. yeah, so let me ask you the last question that I ask everyone that comes on the show. And can you provide us, the audience, not me, well, me as well, of course, a recommendation it can be a book, a TV show, a movie, or some sort of a life hack or a hobby that you picked up in the past 18 months. Hmm. In the past 18 months? Uh, well, you know, it's like sort of since March 2020. Okay, since COVID started. <laughs> yeah. uh, I would say that um, I am... Hmm. I mean, I would check out Savvy Insurance. Can I shamelessly self-promote our solution? <laughs> check out Savvy Insurance online and see if you can save money on car insurance. Uh, use your, use the Trellis data, uh, data platform. The truth is I, uh, I spend basically 120% of a normal work week, uh, maybe a hundred or 200%, uh, working. So I don't have any fun things. I don't have, uh, fun hobbies. I do recommend learning how to fly planes. I think that they are, uh, you know, the general aviation, 
world in America is a special one. It's underappreciated. It's underhyped. Um, I think that uh, there's a lot of joy and and unique human experience to have in the skies. So I would say if you're going to do something, uh, then jump in a plane and go get a sightseeing tour. Fantastic. <laughs> Daniel, thank you very, very much for joining me today. Thank you for having have me. Have an amazing weekend. You too. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Cheers. See you. Bye.